Hello guys and a hearty welcome to this week's episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that recounts some of the most obscure, forgotten and unfamiliar cases from the UK. I'm your host Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title, and I thank you guys for joining me here this week, well and truly ensconced in our summer now over here, eh? So how is everybody doing then? I hope you're all good. Thank you again for all of your continued listens, reviews of the show and support, plus the very kind new Patreon supporters to the show, with welcomes to Troy Graham, Christopher Von Vorst, Brooke Aloha, Lucy Sparrow and Lauren S. That's eight of you guys and I hope you enjoy the bonus episodes and the stuff that shall be winging its way over to you soon. Just to remind, there are now five bonus Patreon episodes of the show for less than the price of a pint of Guinness each month as a subscriber. So that's got to be worth it, hasn't it? The details, should anyone be interested, along with the usual social media links for the show, will be up with the show notes this week. It's promo time as usual now, and this week I'm passing you over to Sarah, the host of Good Nightmare Podcast from Down Under. Please go and check out the show if you don't already. I can't say enough to support independent podcasts. Well, I host one myself, don't I? So I hope you go and check this one out because you may just find your next binge listen. And with that, it's over to Sarah. Hey everyone, this is Sarah from Good Nightmare Podcast. A podcast where I like to talk about all things strange and unusual. Whether it's mysteries, historical crimes... Or fairy tale origins. I hope you'll come along for the ride and join me as we delve into some spooky tales. Happy listening. Thanks very much for that, Sarah. Good nightmare, that is. Available wherever you get your podcasts from, iTunes, Spotify, the usual suspects. I hope you go and check it out. It's well worth doing so. I'm going to let the content of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast this week speak for itself because it's my pleasure to host the second listener week since the show began. Now I have a constant invite for contributors to the show of course because I'm a very firm believer in paying stuff forward and I find it a privilege to have the opportunity to do so because it's by being a contributor to a good friend of the show, the UK True Crime Podcast, That led me to start off at the podcast that you're listening to here. Little acorns and everything, you know? So this week, I have two different cases, each coming from a different listener and contributor to the show. Each case you'll hear this week is entirely researched by each listener and is presented with only minimal addition from myself, just how I received the content myself. Now, I can say that this week's episode does contain content that some listeners may find graphic and disturbing or upsetting, so discretion is advised. So with that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast and friends this week as we look at a pair of cases in the second listener week. Now, in a case of Deja Vu, the first case featured this episode is one researched by Gavin Cook, who submitted the case of Operation Julie for the first listener week few months back in the first series of the show. Gavin runs a page called Kingpin Lords of the Underworld that covers tales of the most notorious and brutal gangsters and crime lords. It's well worth having a look through. There's some really, really interesting stuff on there. And another string to Gavin's bow is that in his capacity as a video editor, he's produced content for stuff like True Crime Garage in the past, which I'm sure is a name that many of you listeners will know. 
I'm pleased to welcome him back here with a guest piece because I absolutely loved the last one he did and it made me enjoy a song by The Clash that I loved a lot but I'd now love a lot more knowing the inspiration for it. The case Gavin's researched this time around is a disturbing and savage crime that took place in 2015 in the South Wales town of Pontypridd, the murder of Tracy Woodford. Pontypridd, or often colloquially known as Ponty, is both a community and the county town of Rhondda Cunontaf in Wales and is situated 12 miles north of the Welsh capital city of Cardiff. The name Pontypridd derives from the name Pont-Utypridd, which is Welsh for bridge by the earthen house, a reference to a succession of wooden bridges that formerly spanned the river Taff at this point. The town sits at the junction of the Rhondda and Taff Cunon valleys, where the river Rhondda flows into the Taff immediately south of the town at Unasangharad War Memorial Park. Pontypridd community had a population of approximately 32,700, according to census figures gathered in 2011, while Pontypridd town ward itself was recorded as having a population of 2,919, also of 2011. The history of Pontypridd is closely tied to the coal and iron industries. Prior to the development of these, Pontypridd was largely a rural backwater, comprising of just a few farmsteads, with Treforest initially becoming the main urban settlement in the area. Sited as it is at the junction of the three valleys, it became an important location for the transportation of coal from the Rhondda and iron from Merthyr Tydfil, first through the Glamorganshire Canal and later through the Taffvale Railway to the ports at Cardiff, Barry, and then on to Newport. Because of its role in transporting coal cargo, its railway platform is thought to have once been the longest in the world during its heyday. Pontypridd was, in the second half of the 19th century, a hive of industry and was once nicknamed the Wild West. The Welsh national anthem Land of My Fathers was composed in Pontypridd by local poets Evan James and James James. It was home to the eccentric Dr William Price, who performed the first cremation in the UK, and Sir Tom Jones, of course, was born in the neighbouring town of Treforest, roughly a mile away. It's not unusual to have some famous names from these places, is it? More recently, the town is known for its shopping and nightlife, and it's also known for infamously disgraced former Lost Prophets singer Ian Watkins, who in November 2013 pleaded guilty to 13 charges, including the attempted rape and sexual assault of a child under 13. These offences were committed against the infant children of two women who were also convicted. He was subsequently jailed for 29 years and ordered to serve a further six years on extended licence. But Watkins is not the only horror to stem from that area, for perhaps less commonly known is a horrific and brutal murder that happened there on the 22nd of April 2015. Tracy Woodford was born on February the 13th, 1968, and had grown up in the village of Ridfelin, just outside Pontypridd, where she still lived with her family. It was her mother Linda and her brother Sean. She was slim, petite, only just five foot tall, with shoulder-length gingery blonde hair, and it's not unfair to say that Tracy had had problems throughout her life. It was suggested that Tracy may have had issues with depression and alcohol at one time or another. She was unemployed, she was a single woman, 
and apart from collecting her benefit money, shopping on behalf of her family or visiting local pubs, she didn't go out very much. Tracy was close to her family, however, and was a frequent visitor to her sister Sharon Maidman's home, who was married and lived nearby. On Monday, April the 20th, 2015, Tracy had visited her sister as usual and told her excitedly about a ring that she'd seen and she'd put a deposit on at the cash converters in Pontypridd that she was going to collect the next day. Her brother Sean saw Tracy the next day shortly before she left for Pontypridd Town Centre to get this ring. After picking the ring up, Tracy went for a drink in the town centre, then visited her sister's home at about 3.40pm to show it to her. She later returned to the town centre and continued to drink at several pubs in Pontypridd and before long was quite intoxicated. Tracy was seen falling off a chair twice in one of the pubs and was helped up by a customer there. She left this pub and was refused alcohol in at least two others after appearing unsteady on her feet. Finally, by 7.45pm, Tracy was in a pub in Pontypridd called The Skinny Dog, which is on Broadway and it was in here that she drank coke. Tracy was later described as being nervous and almost fragile when she first came into the pub, but she soon relaxed when she struck up a conversation with three men in the smoking area, 50-year-old Christopher Nathan May and two of his drinking companions. When Tracy became involved in their conversation, she seemed to visibly perk up, and she joined the three men at their table. Throughout the rest of the evening, now social quartet had more and more to drink and the conversation and banter flowed more and more and by chucking out time just after 11pm each of the three men had left the pub having had plenty to drink thought to be about eight pints with Tracy having just drank coke for the remainder of the evening whilst the two companions walked off one way Tracy and Christopher May headed off the other way with Tracy wearing his coat because she didn't have one and it was quite a chilly evening. They were both captured on CCTV at 11.25pm walking through the town centre towards May's flat in Rickard Street in Greig, which is only approximately half a mile away from the skinny dog. The following morning, Tracy had failed to arrive home, and her worried mother and brother had contacted the police after this. There was no answer on her mobile phone so they contacted police, describing her disappearance as being totally out of character for her. A missing persons inquiry was launched, and by three days after she was last seen, a check of Tracy's last loan movements had led officers to the Skinny Dog pub. Here, it was indeed confirmed that Tracy had been in there on the evening that she was last seen. Member of staff Rebecca Williams told police that she saw Tracy leaving at about 11.20pm with Christopher May and after being told where he lived, uniformed officers Sergeant Stuart Williams and PC Craig Gardner headed to the flat at Andrews Court in Rickard Street to make further inquiries. May was in the flat when the officers called at 3pm on the afternoon of April the 24th, but he told them that it wasn't convenient to talk just then, and attempted to get them to come back at another time. When he was told, No, we're here now, so we'll talk now, he allowed the officers access to the flat. The first thing that struck both officers, which both were later to comment on, was the smell of the flat. It was described as being like a mixture of gone-off meat and cat urine. Lovely, eh? 
but of course some people do live in squalor and they aren't clean-minded perhaps don't even have a sense of smell when he was asked about the night of the 21st of april may indeed confirmed that he'd left the pub with tracy but claimed that she'd left him at the nearby railway station after the pair had shared a kiss in his own words he also told police that she told him to piss off when he tried to cop a feel both officers noticed that may was considerably uneasy and visibly shaking when they spoke to him and acting on a hunch that he knew more than he was letting on they performed a cursory search of the flat the kitchen bedroom and lounge area of the flat all proved negative and although May's was by no means a show home, there was nothing suggesting that foul play had occurred in any of these rooms. There was only the bathroom left to look in. May said to the officers quite hurriedly, there's nothing to see in there, before they looked anyway, and Sergeant Williams pulled back the shower curtain to reveal a disturbing and distressing sight, one that actually made him do a double take, close the curtain, and look again. In the shower cubicle, the two arms and two legs that the officer could clearly see had belonged to a female. The feet still had socks on them, and one of the hands had a finger which still had a ring on it. Turning to May, the officer asked him where the rest of the body was, and was told, Some is in the cupboard, and some is in the storm drain at Pontypris Rugby Club. Told he was being arrested on suspicion of murder, may simply said i know and was cautioned and taken away while scenes of crime officers were requested and a murder inquiry got underway it was only a formality to identify the body parts as belonging to that of tracy a hunch that police had instantly and dna sadly proved confirmation of before may was charged with her murder he was able to lead police to the remainder of tracy's body her right thumb was found in a handbag along with a purse with her bank cards and her decapitated torso had been found in a black bin bag in a kitchen cupboard in may's flat may admitted that he'd disposed of several smaller body parts by flushing them down the toilet but tracy's head was still missing but this was later found in a storm drain by sardis road the home of pontypris rugby club and police had considered the theory that may had hidden this there so he could visit it again periodically on the 27th of april 2015 christopher may appeared at pontypris magistrates court where he was charged with the murder of tracy woodford he was remanded in custody to await trial may's trial began at cardiff crown court in november 2015 where he pleaded not guilty to murder during the two-week trial the jury heard disturbing evidence of what prosecutor Roger Thomas QC claimed was a sexually motivated murder. Earlier in his opening statement, Mr. Thomas said Miss Woodford was strangled sometime between April the 21st and the 22nd, and then referred to Christopher May's statement of events about the evening. In his written statement to the court, May alleged that he and Miss Woodford were both very drunk and had gone back to his flat where he claimed that they engaged in sexual activity he claimed that she'd stayed over and the next morning he woke to see miss woodford dressed and holding his wallet may said he confronted her about this and she came at him with arms flailing and there was a struggle he said the next recollection that he had was the deceased lying on the ground 
May then said he had to move her body, and if he'd removed the limbs he thought it would be easier to move. He claimed that this was more difficult to do than he first thought, and that he was sick on a number of occasions whilst doing so. As time had passed, May said he couldn't report the matter to the police, and he had no option to continue with the process that he'd started. Mr Thomas said about this, The Crown submit these are deliberate and wicked lies and run contrary to all the other evidence. We submit this was a deliberate act influenced by sexual need and was a deliberate and callous act to dismember her, conceal her and dispose of her. He says he was acting in self-defence or that it was an accident or that he lost his self-control. The prosecution submit this was a deliberate, brutal, vicious and sexually motivated murder. The police officers who found Tracy's body in May's flat, Sergeant Stuart Williams and PC Craig Gardner, both gave evidence at the trial, and Sergeant Williams told the court he'd visited May's flat while investigating Miss Woodford's disappearance. He said he was very shocked to find body parts in the shower, and added, I closed the curtain and double-checked to confirm what I saw. I couldn't believe my eyes. I described it as if someone cut up a mannequin and placed it in the shower tray. I told Mr May he was under arrest on suspicion of murder, and he simply said, I know. PC Gardner became tearful in the court and described the situation, saying, I thought I was watching a horror movie. I've been in the police force 11 years. I've never had to deal with anything like this before. A pathologist who examined Miss Woodford's body said that the dismemberment had been carried out by someone with experience with knives or of cutting up human bodies or animals. Mr Thomas told the jury that May had previously been employed as a butcher in Pontypridd and knew how to use a knife, how to remove meat from ribs, legs and shoulders and was good at boning. He added, It seems that his expertise in a butcher's shop has been put to use on a human body. The court heard the majority of Miss Woodford's injuries were caused during a desperate but ultimately hopeless struggle. The cause of her death was given as pressure to the neck, but semen was also found on Miss Woodford's body, which was matched to Christopher May's DNA. Mr Thomas said, It's clear Mr May ejaculated on or in Tracy Woodford. Whether she was dead or alive is impossible for a scientist to say. We submit it's extremely likely, if not certainly, when she was dead. The Crown submit the suggestion that this woman consented to sexual intercourse is completely wrong. We submit the whole incident was brought about by a sexual motivation. The jury then heard the disturbing and distressing details of what was believed to have happened on Tracy's final evening alive. When they'd been in the pub together, May and Tracy were described as being flirty and had left together at 11.20pm, which was confirmed by witnesses and CCTV. It was alleged that May had offered Tracy back to his flat with the promise of alcohol, although she'd warned him, I'm not that kind of girl, when a hint about sex was made, which May had laughed off and backtracked about whilst in the pub. Tracy had, however, gone back to his flat and whilst there, May had tried to woo Tracy with cider and Westlife songs, but vulnerable Tracy was having absolutely none of it. May then flew into a rage, and he strangled Tracy after she continued to spurn his advances. Once Tracy was dead, May had sex with her lifeless body, and after he'd finished with Tracy's corpse, 
he dragged her to the small bathroom of the flat and dumped her body in the shower. A search of May's laptop computer confirmed that he had then spent the early hours of April 22nd visiting online hardcore porn sites, watching all night until 6am. He then started to callously dismember Tracy's body using a saw, a Stanley knife and garden shears, and in an effort to conceal his gruesome crime, May started to dispose of the body parts. He flushed some smaller remains down the toilet, then stashed Tracy's severed head in a plastic Iceland bag and brazenly walked through Pontypridd before hiding the head deep in a storm drain near to the Sardis Road ground, home of Pontypridd Rugby Club. Mr Thomas described to the court the discovery of Tracy's head on April the 25th when two police officers had searched the drain after being directed there by May. The officers entered the tube and as they walked down the tunnel the first thing they immediately noticed is that it's absolutely pitch black if you have no form of lighting. There was running water, they walked 138 metres and the pipe later opened into an underground chamber. There was quite a heavy flow of water coming from the left-hand side. The officer turned his head to the right and he saw a human head lying on its side. On a ledge, a metre or so from the bottom of the chamber, he could see there was a red bag with something in it. Officers returned to the chamber two hours later to film the scene and to retrieve the discovery the court heard. Mr Thomas said, the officer was able to see that the head was wet from the spray of water and was lying on its right side. The red bag was an Iceland carrier bag carrying another body part. And one does have to consider what this involved. The defendant carrying a body part and a human head across Pontypridd into a dark tunnel, walking in for 138 metres. Most significantly, he removed the head from whatever it was being contained in. What was the purpose of displaying the head in that manner on a ledge? He had ample time to do a number of things with it, at the very least bury it or put it in the dense foliage. Why would a man behave this way with a woman's head? It's a very strange thing to have done to put a head in this location. Police had also found two carrier bags which had DNA matching to Tracy Woodford, which could have contained Tracy's internal organs, which were never found, or her head which was found to have slashing marks across the face and bruising. The body part found in one of the bags consisted of Tracy's lower torso. The pelvic organs were in place, but the abdominal organs were missing. It's a stuff of nightmares indeed, isn't it? After a two-week trial, it took a jury just 50 minutes on the 20th of November 2015 to find Christopher May guilty of the murder of Tracy Woodford. May showed no emotion as the guilty verdict was read out, but the family of Tracy Woodford cried out, Yes, and began sobbing. Mrs Justice Nicola Davis branded May a dangerous sexual predator, adding, Your murder of Tracy Woodford was cruel, callous and determined. These same characteristics prompted you to dismember the body of Tracy and then deliberately conceal it. This was done for one reason to avoid detection for the murder you knew you had committed. You embarked on this with little thought for your victim, and still less for that of her family, whose grief for their daughter and sister was made more anguished by the grim dismemberment of her body. Jailing May for life, he was told that he would serve at least 28 years in prison before even being considered for release. 
taking him to 78 years old before having any possibility of being back on the streets. After the end of the trial, a statement was read out on behalf of Miss Woodford's brother Sean Woodford and her sister Sharon Maidment by Family Liaison Officer Detective Constable Kath Brown. She said, No words can begin to explain what Christopher May has done to our family. His action on that night in April and over the following days with what he did to Tracy's body has destroyed us all. We simply cannot understand how anyone could treat another human being in this way. Tracy was a very kind, caring and loving person who didn't have a bad bone in her body. She wouldn't hurt a fly and was just a quiet, gentle soul. She was a devoted daughter to our mother Linda, a wonderful sister and a wonderful sister-in-law. She was a great auntie to her niece and nephews. She didn't have much in the way of money or possessions, but what little she had, she loved to give to the three of them, or would love to buy them some sort of treat, just to put a smile on their faces. That always made her so happy, that's just the type of person that she was. The thoughts and visions of what he did to Tracy have haunted us every day for the last seven months, and is something we will never get over. Our mother has nightmares most nights, waking up screaming and crying out Tracy's name, asking, why would he do this to her? We see the devastation in each other's eyes, and know the hurt that the other is feeling, and know that we are helpless to stop the pain. He didn't just kill Tracy that night, he killed a part of us all. The fact that he didn't admit his guilt at the earliest opportunity, and instead put us through the trial has only increased our pain. Having to sit in court a few feet away from him, and listen to all the graphic details of what he did to her body, and how he disposed of certain body parts in the storm drain, was almost too painful to listen to. But it was something we, as a brother and sister, felt we had to do to honour her, and to show her the respect that he had total disregard for. We would like to thank South Wales Police for their handling of the case, in particular the two officers who went to his flat that day. Without their persistence and quick actions, we may never have had the chance to lay our Tracy to rest, and we will forever be grateful to them for that. Also speaking outside the court, Senior Investigating Officer Detective Inspector Rob Cronick of South Wales Police Specialist Crime Investigation Team said that his thoughts were with the family of Miss Woodford. This inhumane, barbaric and sexually motivated act took the life of an unsuspecting, life-loving member of our community. Our thoughts today are with Tracy's family who, I hope, have been given some closure as a result of the jury's decision. May had shown no remorse for his actions of murder, mutilation and dismemberment, after which Tracy's family and friends have endured the further anguish and torment of a Crown Court trial. Richard Killick, Senior Crown Prosecutor for the Crown Prosecution Service Cymru Wales, said, Christopher May is responsible for a brutal, heinous attack on Tracy Woodford. Having killed her, he compounded his dreadful actions by attempting to conceal her body in the most horrific circumstances, and then concocting a story based on wicked and deliberate lies in order to explain what he'd done. The jury saw through these lies and convicted May, thereby ensuring he is made to face justice for his actions. There were few clues to the evil that Christopher May was capable of, and the side to him, which later came to be labelled a sexual predator, wasn't seen by those who associated with him on a daily basis. He was born on December 23, 1964, in Pontypris, 
he went to school in the area, and after leaving, he began working at Hadley's Butcher Shop in Pontypridd on a part-time basis as a teenager. May went full-time at the butchers and worked there for 17 or 18 years until it closed down. It was here that he learnt the skills that helped him to carry out his gruesome crime more than 30 years later. A former co-worker, Barry Heyman, described May as being a very nice guy, very helpful, and told how they always had lots of banter and that he was a right laugh. Yeah, he sounds delightful, doesn't he, doing things like that. He said that May had taught him how to strip meat from animal carcasses and was a lot better than himself at doing so. After his butcher career ended, May became a taxi driver and worked at an electronics factory in Newbridge in Caerphilly. Aged 31, he went to live in Cardiff and in 1996 he found love there with a partner, Tina. They lived together until 2002 and had two children together but later separated. In November 2010, Tina sadly took her own life. May drifted after this, and after finding himself unemployed and living a hermit-like existence, May moved to the flat in Andrews Court and began signing on at the job centre in Pontypridd Town Centre. He also became a regular at the Skinny Dog Pub, where he would later go on to meet the woman that he would kill. Described as a joker and a laugh by those he drank with, over the two years before Tracy's murder, May said he'd been irregular at the pub and he described his drinking consumption as excessive, enjoying between six and eight pints of his favoured tipple of Newcastle Brown Ale. Member of staff at the pub, Rebecca Williams, told Cardiff Crown Court during his trial, I never had to say bad words to him in the pub or to stop his drink. He's always been a gentleman. We used to have banter. I would call him Little Legs and I would give him lifts home from work. Tony Haney, a friend of May's, also told the court that he'd known him for 10 years and said, He was alright, a bit of a joker, a nice bloke. He used to come to my flat. I'd go to his and watch the rugby. He was a pleasant fella. But a more sinister picture that hinted at May being a dangerous sexual offender was painted by other people. Another member of the Skinny Dog bar staff, Keris Richards, gave evidence at May's trial and broke down in the witness box as she recalled how May had twice approached her just days before he went on to kill. Describing one occasion, Miss Richards said, He started talking to me about his love of redheads, how he were perfect and good in bed, which quite offended me. He asked if he could look at my fingers. I hesitantly put my hand out and he grabbed hold of my fingers. He seemed disgusted by the way I had my fingers and he said I should look after them better, and he was stroking my fingers. It upset me and disturbed me that he was saying these strange things to someone who was young enough to be his daughter. One former drinking companion, who said he wouldn't arrange to meet May, but often saw him at pubs around Pontypridd, was with him the night before he met Tracy. The 50-year-old, who asked to be identified only as Dave, said that when news of the crime emerged, he began to remember bizarre comments made by May in the past, but which he'd thought little of at the time. There was an incident on the news sometime before that that someone had been murdered, and he said it would be easy to kill someone, but if you want to get rid of them, there's a knack to doing it. I thought nothing of this, but when it all came out, I even wondered whether he'd done it before. Dave, who'd known May for at least three years, 
also described the killer as having frequently lechd over women. He went on, Chris would sit down and talk to them, and they'd get up and walk off. I saw that happen a few times. He would take notice of any woman who would pay him attention. He never really spoke about his likes or dislikes. It was all about women. He would talk about football, about boxing, whatever was on TV and other bloke stuff, but it was mainly women. He was a bit of a liar in some ways, because sometimes I'd see him in the street, and he'd say that he had a date that night. But I would just see him later on, and he wouldn't be with anyone. He'd just make up stories just to be normal, I suppose. And until that evening in April 2015, he appeared exactly that. Had he done it before, though? It was revealed during the trial that May did have a string of previous criminal convictions, including when he torched the Pontypridd school and was discovered playing the piano inside by firefighters while the blaze raged around him. He received an 18-month jail sentence for this offence, but his criminal past had begun at the age of just 14 when he was caught burgling a house. The other convictions he had were for petty offences, there was no record of May ever having a history of sexual offending, and he himself claimed that he had just lost control that evening. That's some losing control, isn't it, really, that? I'd suggest that from an early age, playing the piano while you're trapped in a fire that you yourself have started suggests that the lift doesn't quite go up to the top floor there, does it? And for a sex crime, this is some first offence. Really, really is. And as for dismembering Tracy's body, well... That's horror enough, but to carry her head in a bag through Pontypridd and walk nearly 500 feet down a pitch-black drainage tunnel to hide it, display it on a ledge even, well, it chills to the bone to think what awful act May would have got up to had he not been caught. There can't be any doubt that he would have revisited this scene countless times and that this was a trophy or an altar. And also in no doubt is that the judge was completely right. A very dangerous sexual predator has been taken off the streets there and the women of South Wales can now rest a slight easier. So was this a long-standing fantasy acted out? Or who knows? Is Christopher May responsible for more? For the second and concluding case in this listener-created episode, it's the turn of a long-standing supporter of the show, Andy Childlow Parish. Now, Andy's is a name that some listeners may be familiar with. He's a proper true crime buff from the UK and is involved as a listener of loads and a supporter of some fabulous true crime podcasts, including The Minds of Madness and They Walk Among Us, which he moderates on their discussion groups. He's a very kind Patreon supporter of my own show, and I'm pleased to say that he also helps moderate on the Facebook discussion group of my own show. Plus, I'm privately convinced that he also has either an uncanny sense to pick cases that I have on my ultra-private fridge blackboard, or he has a secret key to my house. What I'm looking forward to also is that I believe Andy is himself soon starting his own true crime-based blog which I'm sure will go down very well, and he can count on myself championing it here on the show, as long as he stops nicking my potential cases. The case that Andy has researched and written for the show deals with a savage murder from the mid-2000s that was high profile at the time, although the name of the perpetrator may not be too familiar a one to listeners. This is a truly horrendous crime, and one I'd considered doing myself in a future episode, but I'm pleased to be able to host it as a guest piece from Andy. 
as a savage crime, again, it contains content that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting. So, discretion's the name of the game again, guys. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast for the second listener-submitted case this week, the murder of Sally-Ann Bowman. Sally-Ann Bowman was born on the 11th of September 1987 to Linda and Paul Bowman, the youngest of their four children with three older sisters, Nicole, Michelle and Danielle. Sally-Ann's parents had divorced, but remained close and Sally-Ann had a good relationship with both of her parents. Growing up, Sally-Ann dreamt of being a singer and a model, and she managed to attend the Brit School for Performing Arts and Technology in Croydon, a school that had some famous alumni including singers Amy Winehouse and Katie Melua. She was a beautiful, talented girl, and whilst attending here won a competition to become the face of Swatch Watches. From this, Sally-Ann also caught the attention of a leading modelling agency. In January 2005, Sally-Ann joined Pulse Model Agency, and in April 2005 took part in the Swatch Alternative Fashion Week. Sally-Ann said at the time that she was nervous all week, particularly when the models were lined up and the designers chose who they wanted to model their clothes. Sally-Ann was picked by lots of designers, which gave her a massive confidence boost. She dreamt of one day being on the front cover of Vogue magazine and had on occasion been compared to supermodel Kate Moss. The future certainly looked bright for this beautiful, talented girl, but tragically, Sally-Ann's dreams would never be fulfilled. 10pm on the 24th of September 2005, Sally-Ann, her sister Nicole and a group of friends go to Lloyd's Bar in Croydon Town Centre. They have a great time whilst they're out, drinking, dancing and doing what thousands of young people do every weekend. CCTV shows Sally-Ann leaving the bar at 1am and she waits for 15 minutes before being taken to a friend's house by taxi. At a friend's house, Sally-Ann contacts her ex-boyfriend Louis Sproston, who Sally-Ann has just recently split from. The couple have been in contact for most of the evening by phone, with each of them accusing the other of cheating to cause the end of the relationship. The evening had gone sour when her sister Nicole had been arrested for fighting, and when she told Lewis this, Lewis agreed to come and pick Sally-Ann up and take her home. Sally-Ann took a taxi back to Croydon Town Centre, where Lewis picked her up around 2.20am and drove Sally-Ann home to Blenheim Crescent. When they parked up, their argument flared up again over their recent split, accusing each other of cheating and determining that this was certainly a contribution to them ending their relationship. The argument became very heated, and at 4.15am, Sally-Ann got out of the car and Lewis drove off. Sally-Ann was just 10 yards from her front door, but would never make it home. In a vicious attack, Sally-Ann was grabbed and knifed seven times by an assailant in the neck and torso. The stab wounds to her neck were done with such force that the blade completely penetrated her neck and protruded from the other side. Sally-Ann's screams are heard by a neighbour around 4.20am, but the attacker doesn't flee. The attacker hides in the shadows and waits for any lights to come on in any of the nearby houses, but none do. In a sickening act to deprive Sally-Ann of any dignity that she has, her attacker then rapes Sally-Ann as she lies dead or dying on the ground. 
the attacker savagely bites her and also takes Sally Ann's handbag, cardigan, mobile phone and her underwear. These will be his trophies. Two hours after the attack, at 6.30, Sally Ann's body is discovered in a pool of blood by neighbours. Police are now left with the horrible task of informing Sally Ann's family that she's been murdered. Sally Ann's sister recalled in a later interview that when she was told Sally Ann had been murdered, part of her went away and would never come back. A murder investigation is launched and is headed by Detective Superintendent Stuart Curdy of the Met Police. At the beginning of the investigation, police have one person of interest who starts to stand out as Sally Ann's potential killer, the last known person to see her alive and someone who is well known to her. Lewis Sproston is arrested on the evening of Sunday the 25th of September. When arrested, Lewis appears to drop himself right in it saying, is this about last night? And with these words, the police are confident that they have their killer and will be able to wrap the case up quickly. Police have the killer's DNA from Sally Ann's body, so all they need to do is match it to the sample taken from Lewis. But frustratingly for detectives, there is no match, so Lewis is released without charge and eliminated as a suspect. Detectives are left back at square one. As the investigation unfolded, it emerges that the killer could have been responsible for an incident which occurred just 40 yards from where the attack on Sally Ann took place at about 3.30am. A woman pulls over to use her mobile phone. Unable to get a signal, she gets out of the car when she's suddenly approached by a man. The woman can see that the man is carrying a knife and she thinks she's about to get mugged. In anticipation of this, the woman holds out her handbag hoping the man will just take it and run away without any violence. She's wrong. The man actually says sorry and then attacks her and beats her over the head with a blunt object. Fortunately for the woman, the attacker is disturbed by a passing taxi and flees into the night. She's treated for her injuries and realises that she's been bitten. She's able to provide police with a description of the attacker, but it provides no leads. Police though did make some progress when they cross-referenced DNA from Sally Ann's murder and to other samples from unsolved crimes, and it matches another offence which occurred in 2001. This offence happened in the nearby town of Purley, in which a young woman was making a call from a telephone box when a man exposed himself to her. The woman could see that the man was masturbating and tried but failed to get into the phone box with her. After he had ejaculated over the phone box window, the man managed to get away. Although she was terribly afraid, the woman did manage to get a look at his face and provide a description. The descriptions between this and the one given of the assailant on the night Sally Ann was killed were very similar. Six months after Sally Ann's murder, police released both EFIT pictures of the suspect to the media and explained that the cases are all linked. Police also believe that up to six sex attacks in the area could be linked to the murderer, but by the end of February 2007, despite releasing the two e-fits, making three appeals on Crimewatch UK, and offering a £40,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the killer, the police still don't have any answers. 
drastic measures are taken and they urge 4,000 local men to take part in a DNA screening procedure which would eliminate them from inquiries. 771 men volunteer for this but no matches are found. Then on 15th of June 2006 there's a breakthrough. The Football World Cup in Germany is on and on the 15th of June England are playing Trinidad and Tobago in a group match. Watching the game in a pub that evening, ye old six bells in Hawley, is a man named Mark Dixie. He's actually the chef at the pub. In an innocent incident, a man accidentally bumps into Mark and spills his pint over him. Mark is furious and follows the man outside the pub to confront him about this. When he does, a minor scuffle breaks out, and in full view of two police officers, who just happened to be patrolling past at the time, Mark pushes the man to the floor and is arrested as a result. Mark Dixie is taken to Crawley Police Station where he's processed and causes eyebrows to raise by bursting into tears when a routine DNA sample is taken from him. Mark Dixie is then bailed. Two weeks later, results of this DNA confirm a hit, an exact match with that left by the killer of Sally Ann Bowman and arrangements are made for the arrest of Mark Dixie for her murder. Police arrest Dixie as he takes a cigarette break at his place of work. Dixie's calm and unfazed by the arrest, with one of the arresting officers commenting later that Dixie's heart rate does not change at any point of the arrest. Dixie answers no comment to all questions, but was charged and the following day appears at Sutton Magistrates Court. Whilst he's in custody, a search of Dixie's property is undertaken and a disturbing discovery is made. Police discover that Dixie has been masturbating to photos and video footage of Sally Ann Bowman clearly reliving her brutal murder and rape. Detectives are very confident that they've got their man, but they know they need a watertight case, so they begin to investigate Mark Dixie's past. Mark Philip Dixie was born on the 24th of September 1970 in Streatham in London. At 18 months old his parents divorced, with his mum remarrying when Mark was around 8. At about 14 years old he started using cannabis, and at about 16 his criminal record began. In 1986 Dixie's first crime is to rob a woman in Stockwell in London. During the attack he puts a knife to her throat, demands money and then gropes her. For this crime Mark is sentenced to just six weeks detention. At age 17, following the birth of his stillborn son, Mark attacks a Jehovah's Witness in the lift of a Plumstead tower block, hitting her in the face, then indecently assaulting her. Police discover that Dixie has been arrested for crimes ranging from burglary, robbery, indecent assault and exposure over a seven year period but during the 1990s his trail goes cold. This baffles police initially, as it's clear Dixie is a dangerous man, so why would his crime stop? In 1993 Dixie moves with his then partner Sandra to Australia, and they go on to have two children. Links are made to the Claremont serial killer, who was active at that time, and there were several similarities to Sally Ann's murder, such as the victims were three blonde women, one had their handbag stolen and another was bitten. However, this turns out not to be the work of Mark Dixie. 
1998, a young Thai student living in Perth, Western Australia, is attacked in her home by a masked man who breaks in. She's stabbed eight times in the back by her attacker, who, when he's convinced she's dead or dying, savagely rapes her, and in doing so leaves vital DNA that will sometime later confirm his identity. The same year, a teenager is raped in Leederville near Perth. This is very close to where Mark Dixie was then living. Mark Dixie is eventually deported from Australia due to another sex crime, where he exposes himself to a female jogger and asks her to perform a sex act upon him. Regrettably, offences in Australia were not passed on to British authorities, though. By 2003, Dixie is back in Croydon with new partner Stacy and their baby son after living and working in Spain for a short period. On the fateful night of the 24th of September 2005, Mark Dixie is celebrating his 35th birthday with a group of friends. He's also hoping to patch things up with Stacy after she left him on the 1st of September. The relationship had been very strained, as Mark's habitual drug taking was spiralling out of control and would mean Mark would often be moody and aggressive. Stacy would find out that Mark gets extremely angry over the smallest things. Also, whilst high on drugs, Dixie likes to bite Stacy on the neck after rough sex, which is the tipping point for her, and she leaves Mark. Despite his repeated attempts to do so, Stacy has no interest in reconciliation with him, and Mark is furious. He continues his drink and drugs binge, but is now clearly aggravated. In the early hours of the morning, Mark Dixie, who's had several drinks of lager and spirits, plus marijuana and cocaine, is invited to spend the night at the home of friends that he'd been out socialising with. Dixie leaves the house at 2.30am, later claiming he was going to buy some more cocaine, but in reality, looking for a woman to rape, and comes across Sally Ann and Lewis arguing. He waits and watches to see Lewis drive away, then strikes and murders, rapes and robs Sally Ann Bowman. The trial of Mark Dixie starts on the 4th of February 2008 at London's Old Bailey. To everyone's amazement, Dixie has entered a plea of not guilty and he refuses to change this, despite forensic scientist Julianne Cornelius' testimony to the jury that there's a billion to one chance the DNA found on Sally Ann's body is not from Mark Dixie. So what was Mark Dixie's defence? He stands up in court to deny murder and explain his not guilty plea. He tells the jury that he came across Sally Ann's body, but thought she was drunk and passed out, so he decided to have sex with her. It was only after he bit her four times during sex, and she didn't respond, that he realised she was dead, so he ran away, fearing that he would be accused of killing her. The prosecution is now able to call to the witness stand two of Dixie's previous victims. The prosecution need the jury to understand just how barbaric this man is, not only for the attacks he carried out, but also for forcing them to relive their ordeals. Both the Thai student attacked in Perth and the lady attacked in Plumstead give evidence about their own horrific separate attacks. Both cases in which items of the victim's clothing are found to have DNA samples on them that prove a billion to one match to Mark Dixie. 
Police believe this is the reason why Dixie entered the not guilty plea, for his own sadistic pleasures, to have the thrill of his crime played out in front of Sally Ann's heartbroken family. Members of the Bowman family are disgusted by what they hear, and at one point Sally Ann's mother has to leave the court in tears. The jury takes three hours, and in a unanimous decision finds Mark Dixie guilty of the murder of Sally Ann Bowman. Dixie just responds by shaking his head. When passing sentence, Mr Justice Gerald Gordon tells Dixie, What you did that night was so awful and repulsive that I do not propose to repeat it. He then jails Dixie for life and recommends that Dixie serve a minimum of 34 years in prison. Dixie does not show the slightest remorse as he was taken away to begin his sentence. Dixie finally admitted to Sally Ann's murder in January 2015 in a letter to police. In his confession, he wrote that he wanted to tell the truth about what happened. He told detectives that he killed Sally Ann in a frenzied attack which included biting her after she fled from her boyfriend's car. Dixie has also admitted to two further attacks, one involving a woman when he was just 16 years old. The victim of this attack was targeted in her own car in an isolated South London car park. After attacking her, Dixie tied her up and set the car on fire with her still in it. The victim said he seemed delighted in her evident fear and as she became hysterical thinking she was about to die. The woman, who was aged 44 at the time, managed to free herself and raise the alarm and was left utterly petrified, especially when she received two chilling phone calls from her attempted killer in the following days. The second attack in 2002 saw Dixie bludgeon a woman with a chef's steel normally used to sharpen knives. Dixie molested his victim and told her that he was going to kill her. The woman managed to escape when Dixie was interrupted by a man who had heard her screams. Dixie took the victim's mobile phone during the attack and later boasted in a call to the victim's ex-boyfriend, I've battered her, I've battered her, I've left her by the railway. When he confessed to the crime, he said, I was sitting there, had a person who's unconscious next to me quiet. No one's heard anything. I could have done whatever I wanted to, but this person saved this woman and saved me from doing something worse. Mark Dixie has since been given two additional life sentences for these attacks. He's also responsible for raping three women in the Costa del Sol resort town of Frengarola in 2003 crimes for which an innocent Dutchman, Romano van der Dussen, spent 15 years in prison for, before finally being acquitted in 2016. He was in court to watch Dixie issued a further two life sentences for the crimes that he'd admitted to, along with the family of Sally Ann Bowman. Tears were shed when he reflected that if Spanish police had done a thorough investigation, the real culprit would have been arrested, and Sally Ann's face may just have been on the cover of Vogue by now. Mr Van der Dusen said, Due to Dixie, I suffered hell in prison, and I'm still suffering every day. In the courtroom, I was looking at him without blinking, and he was looking as if he was bored. I was thinking, you have to feel something. How can you not feel anything? But a monster such as Mark Dixie feels nothing except for himself, though. In 24 years' time, 
his minimum 34-year sentence will be up, and even though he'll be 72 years old by that time, it will be for people to decide whether he's still a very dangerous threat to the public, and especially a danger to women. I hope that the said people think very carefully about that if that day comes. So a pair of absolutely shocking cases there for this listeners week, don't you agree? And two of the most depraved and horrible scumbags that you could ever come across. Real stuff of nightmares. I'd like to pass on my sincere thanks to both Gavin and Andy for their contributions there to create this episode. I appreciate the research and writing that both have put into creating the content, and I said with only minimal input by myself. It's the perfect time to remind you all that I am always open to featuring a case on the show that's been researched and written by someone other than myself. You know the type of cases that I choose to feature here, and if you know of one that you think would be a good fit that you'd like to hear on the show, then please get in touch if you wish. I always try to put out content that I would myself like to hear as a listener. Links to Gavin's page can be found in the show notes this week. And as Andy's blog is still in the preparation stages, then rest assured when more details are forthcoming, they'll be shared here. The usual discussion thread will be up shortly on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Facebook discussion group for you to optionally give your thoughts and opinions about this episode. I shall, of course, be putting my own in there, and I'd hope you'd feedback on the cases that have been submitted by Gavin and Andy. I'm back in the chair next episode to bring you another case, having had my week off of writing and researching, and I look forward to you joining me then. Thanks very much for joining me here today though. I'm Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, wishing you guys a happy and safe week, and I shall speak to you soon. Take care folks, and goodbye for now.